You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. On December 18, 1975, George and Kathy Lutz and their three children moved into a house in Amityville, Long Island. Nineteen days later, they were running for their lives. What Happened to Them became one of the best-selling books in years and is now a fascinating motion picture, an experience in terror to make you believe in the unbelievable, the Amityville... There's something in this house, something evil. In Connecticut. He's here. It's November 1st, 1971. I'm sitting here with Carolyn Perrin, who, with her family, has been experiencing supernatural occurrences. You picking up anything in here, hon? Something awful happened here, Ed. What is it? What are you guys? Well, we've been called ghost hunters, paranormal researchers. But we prefer to be known simply as Ed and Lorraine Warren. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm your host, Blake Smith. This episode's a little different from anything I've put together before. I'm a big fan of horror films and thrillers. And like a lot of folks, I used to be terrified to hear those chilling words based on a true story when a supernatural horror film was being advertised. And even though the so-called true stories often turn out to be less convincing than the case behind them, like, for example, The Exorcist, or a complete fabrication like the events in the film The Changeling, I still like those movies. I recently went to see the film The Conjuring, which is based on a haunting case investigated by the famous, or perhaps infamous, couple Ed and Lorraine Warren. I wanted to do an episode about that case, but I decided instead to look at the Warrens themselves. While I really enjoyed the first third of The Conjuring, the depiction of Ed and Lorraine was as unbelievable to me as the levitating chairs and the flying bedsheets. Now, Ed died in 2006, but Lorraine's still alive and is actively promoting her work and her brand of investigation. For years, I'd been hearing Lorraine talk about the Amityville case, which I found perplexing because, really, the Warrens seemed to have nothing to do with that case. Also, I knew that I'd heard some first-hand stories from paranormal investigator Joe Nickel and also from Steve Novella about their encounters with the Warrens. 
I thought it might be fun to pull together multiple interviews to give a kind of counterbalance to the way the Warrens are usually depicted, especially to counterbalance the ridiculous, almost saint-like depiction they were given in The Conjuring. In this episode, you'll hear from Joe Nickel, a longtime investigator of the paranormal through scientific methodology. He's written numerous books and is the chief investigator at CSI, the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. You'll also hear from Steve Novella. Steve is a neurologist, a proponent of science-based medicine, and the host of the popular Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast. And we'll hear from Ray Garten, who did an entire episode with us on his experience with the Warrens during the making of In a Dark Place, which later became the film A Haunting in Connecticut. And I interviewed WPIX New York's senior reporter Marvin Scott. Unfortunately, I was not able to get audio from that interview, but I did find a clip in which Marvin gives a neat summary of his experiences with the Warrens at Amityville. So let's start there. For years, I've heard Ed and Lorraine talking about the trauma of their experience at Amityville. But I knew from my own reading and research that they weren't part of the original haunting investigation, nor in the book by Jay Anson. So how did they get involved? In this clip, You'll hear Ed and Lorraine explain exactly how they got involved with the Amityville case. Monster Dog. Now, Ed, can you tell me how you and Lorraine got involved in the Amityville horror? Well, it was Marvin Scott from Channel 5 News Team. He was the anchorman at the time. And uh, he had been involved with a haunting that we had investigated in Bloomfield, New Jersey. And he was impressed by this. So he gave us a ring and he said, um, we'd like you to come down and see what's going on in Amityville, Long Island. Now, this was not the Amityville horror case at that time, you understand. Mm -hmm. This was just another haunted house, and we didn't even realize that six people had been murdered in that house of the failed family. Okay, Lorraine, I know you went in the house and you experienced things, mm -hmm. but can we just go over how you uh, first were called into the house, like who was the gentleman that, or people that called you in? Was it the Lexus that called you in? No, it was not, Tony. It was Marvin Scott who called us in. He told us there had been a tragedy in that home. He didn't go into detail regarding it. He told us that it was a prominent family. He, he also told us during that very first conversation that the family that were living there at the present time had fled and left all of their possessions behind. And their viewers were very interested of the history of that house and what exactly might be wrong with the home. That's how we first became involved. A few years ago, I had seen a documentary about Amityville with Marvin Scott discussing the Amityville Halloween special that he had done. I contacted him, and he explained, just as he had in the show, that there was little to tell. He had taken a film crew and some paranormal investigators into the Amityville home to do a seance near Halloween. And it was a big flop. Nothing happened of interest. But Lorraine Warren did ask to go to a separate seance upstairs. And while Marvin and his crew left disappointed, Lorraine and Ed left with a legend that would stay with them for the rest of their lives. Whatever it was the Lutzes believed was in that house, it did not manifest itself the night I spent in the house 23 years ago with a group of parapsychologists who conducted a seance. The demonic force was supposedly the strongest in the sewing room where Lorraine Warren conducted another seance by candlelight. Other than a brief chill, after all, it was February, I felt nothing unusual. But it did to me, Marvin, because I said to you, Marvin, I hope this is as close to hell as I'll ever get. Not I. The only persistent voice I heard that night was that of my crew, wanting to know when we were going to have the sandwiches we had brought along. 
Now let's get to Joe Nickel. He just finished up a very thorough investigation into the case behind The Conjuring, and the write-up of that will be in an upcoming Skeptical Inquirer magazine. I talked to Joe about his involvement with this case and with the Warrens, and it goes back a while, but I'll let him tell you all about it. Monster Dog. When did you first become aware of the Warrens and their work? Well, I really got them firsthand back in the days of the haunting in Connecticut, uh, the first version of that with the Snedekers. Yeah. The the uh, case that made um, Sally Jesse Raphael just in time for Halloween. And I was on with uh, the Snedekers and with uh, Ed and Lorraine, and it left a very bad taste in my mouth. Um Ed Warren was a bullying type and a backstage a loudmouth swearing sailor and um not in my opinion a nice guy. He um uh, he made veiled threats to me on the Sally show sort of under his breath and I turned to him at one point and I said, Are you threatening me? And of course they, they cut all that out of the tape. Joe, you say the investigations the Warrens conducted is baloney. Why? Well, I've investigated haunted houses for some 20 years, and a professional psychologist... Pardon? Is there such a thing? I've not met a house that I thought was haunted. Uh, I think the Warrens have never met a house that they didn't think was haunted. (laughs) I think that you are mistaken. The... I was going to show you that man It's my turn. You made a statement. I've heard that you were loud mouthed. You shouted people down. Just give me my chance no, to I talk. Give you, a chance you did that to me last uh, show. We were a bunch on. of lies. Joe, we I'll give you your chance. We have the proof. You're a loud mouth, Warren, and no, we, all, we all we all know it. But if you'll just let me finish. When, you, when you're concerned, I'm a loud mouth. Go ahead, Joe. Try, to show, try to show a little Joe, class. Joe, I don't have a lot of TV. time. No, I'm not going to give class to somebody Ed, who's sitting here. You'll have nothing but Ed, lying. Ed, let Joe just explain. Be careful who you call a liar. Well, what would Go you ahead. do about it? <laughs> uh, guys, Joe, point by point. Yes. One thing, that the houses that sincere people report that they think are haunted usually follow certain patterns. This is a hodgepodge of the sort of ghost tale, poltergeist, part demon, part this, there? part that. We saw a similar pattern with the Amityville Horror, a case that the Warrens thought was genuine. We didn't it think turned we out it turned out to be a blatant Nobody hoax ever proved that. concocted over bo- several bottles it. of wine. Can the you evidence prove it? Yes, I no, can prove can. it. Yes, you I can. It's it. been proven. No, it has never The been evidence proven. is very clear in the case of the Amityville Horror. No, the whole no packaging way. of this story. Uh, the book packaging. says it's for Halloween release. The book was written by a, a professional fiction writer who writes horror stories. Joe, uh, this whole church, packaging is a crock. Joe, does the church admit to exorcism? He's an according atheist. How to, would he know? According to a newspaper article that I have, the yeah. Bridgeport newspaper, the diocese refuses to confirm that they had any exorcism there. It wasn't if there done was, by the If there was Sally, an exorcism, I don't understand why there is any, any reason why they can't come out and say so. We've had priests on the, the show the when we've talked about exorcism. If I can prove that right. there was an exorcism. After the show, I went outside and... Uh, Ed Warren was sitting in the limo to go back to the airport, and he had the car door open, and I walked right up to him, and I said, uh, you were going to do what to me? And he looked, you know, frightened, and, and I, I leaned in, and I said, you know, Ed, you're a tough guy. You're tough around the mouth, and walked off.
uh, the whole episode's available on YouTube right now, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, okay. And so the Haunting of Connecticut case, we'd actually talked about in a previous episode. We got Ray Garten, the author who wrote the novel about that, on. And I had actually run into him on a um, message board where uh-huh. where he had spoken very disparagingly about the whole experience of writing that book and that he hated the fact that it had been uh, written uh, in the based on a true story motif. And... <laughs> And so I didn't know if that was really him or not. And I tracked him down and uh, got him to come on and talk about it. It's, and so I'm going to put a little bit of that in this episode as well. Uh, yeah, I, I understand he he had trouble because he, he thought the Snedekers kept changing their story, for one thing. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm not sure if he was uh, saying that the Warrens were encouraging, but one of the one of the ghostwriters was saying that they, were, they would encourage him to... Um, sort of make up stuff or, you know, add scary, improvise with scary elements. I'm going to clip a little bit of that audio. Uh, I went to Connecticut and I met with Ed and Lorraine Warren and Alan Carmen Snedeker, the, the couple who had lived in the former uh, funeral parlor, the house that used to be a funeral parlor. And I, ha- I recorded our conversations. I had uh, quite a few tapes and I couldn't get the, the the Snedekers, their stories, their deta- the details of their stories weren't meshing. They weren't adding up. And so I went to Ed Warren and I explained to him that this this was happening, you know, and I, I, I said, I'm not sure how to go about this. I had never done any nonfiction before. So this was a new experience for me and I was trying to, I wanted to have all the information laid out in chronological order in front of me and it just wasn't adding up. So I told Ed, and and he said, um, "Well, they're crazy." He said, "All the people who come to us are crazy. That's why, <laughs> that's why they come to us." Um, he he said, "You just use what you can and make the rest up." He said, "That's why we hired you. You're you're a horror writer. You write scary books. We want this to be a good story, and we want it to be scary." Because I think that's really uh, I think that's really important to understand that about about what the Warrens were up to. You know, it's one thing to be very, very misguided, which of course they were, but but that alone does not make someone odious, uh, perhaps. But but when you're misguided and and not honest, then you're um, well. It's hard to find for me to find redeeming quality. Did Did you have a chance to see the Conjuring? Yes, I've uh, not only seen the Conjuring, but I've. Uh, I've read both of the available two books of a trilogy by Andrea Perrin, so I, I deserve some kind of medal. There were there were several things. Uh, the Warrens did come there, and and uh, and the the father Roger didn't didn't uh, know that they were coming. Uh, they, they didn't invite them. The the. Warrens just showed up one day. So that's really quite different from the way the movie has them being sought out as this famous duo and so forth that they begged them to come and help them. No, they just showed up uh, sometime before, I think it was again before Halloween. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it shows a whole lot, I think, about what they're up to. Most mm. of their work was done around Halloween, it looks like. And they... Um, they tried to ingratiate themselves, and then, then Carolyn Perrin, the the, the mother, um, 
did uh, kind of buy into the Warrens, while her husband kept saying, you know, these people are charlatans, and this whole approach is just nothing better than a, a kind of fraud and a, and a bunch of silliness, and he wanted no part of it. But she, uh, she was very uh, intent, and so she invited them for the famous sort of exorcism, which was originally billed as just a cleansing of the house or a seance, and they showed up. So, so Roger was not happy. Uh, he was, uh, you know, pretty much uh, had outs with the whole operation. So he was not sitting in the circle of the seance. And so, at some point, she she scoots back in her chair and falls over. This, of course, is in the movie is made that the chair levitates and turns completely upside down. Yeah. So, so it just. Just to kind of compare, well, he so so her husband rushes over to help her, and Ed Warren tries to restrain him. Whereupon, in one of the great moments of of skepticism, uh, he decked uh, Warren, hit him right in the nose, it bloodied his nose. Wow! And I thought back to Sally Jesse Raphael when I read that, and I thought that could have been me. But. <laughs> You know, so you just realize these things that you might might have done, and someone else did it. So, but uh, seriously, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> seriously, uh, that's what happened. And uh, in the books, uh, since I have not had the opportunity to read that, are is that the right word? Anyway, I haven't read those books. <laughs> right, right. I mean, a thousand a thousand pages of about fifty dollars worth of books. Uh, the things I do for the cause of skepticism, and, we, and it's appreciated. I assure you. <laughs> do you know somebody had to read them? Yeah, yeah. And now these are self-published, and I think one of the things that really made me not want to read them, um, besides the Amazon reviews, was the fact. Well, that, the trouble the trouble is though in not wanting to no. is is that the, they nevertheless are the most the most. Um, Authoritative is not the right word. The, the closest to a primary source. The closest to a primary source. That's yeah. right. And, and 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 even at that, it's pretty pathetic, because uh, she's writing thirty some years after the fact. Right. This is not recorded, or you know. Um, now there were allegedly some notes her mother made and some sketches and and so forth, but she gave those to Lorraine Warren with the understanding that. You know, there were a couple of understandings. One was that they were sort of talking to them confidentially. And secondly, that they, you know, she was lending these notes. At least that's the way it's presented in the books. And, of course, <laughs> she she didn't understand the Warrens. So, of course, there's never to this day has anyone gotten them back, if if the Warrens even, you know, if, if Lorraine is dead, but if, if Lorraine even knows where where they are, and uh, as to the confidentiality, of course, the first thing they know is that uh, um, people are coming to their house, uh, sort of sort of like happened at Amityville. People were coming to their house uh, sort of wanting to see the ghosts, you know. And, and uh, uh, Carolyn Perrin was wondering, well, where are these people coming from, you know, and well, how do they know about our rural isolated farmhouse well the warrens were were giving public lectures 
and telling people right where they were. Wow. And so they were they were and I, I should interject here that that if anyone listening to the show is interested in looking at the house, please don't because the current owners are already uh, suffering from a tremendous amount of harassment because of the publicity from this film. I'm I'm not surprised. Uh, you know, the uh, to mention another house that the Warrens were connected with, and there were several: uh, the Smurls House in West Pittston and. Uh, and Amityville and 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 others. Um, they um, the Amityville house. I knew Barbara Comedy, who lived in the house with her husband uh, after after the famous uh, brouhaha created by the Lutzes and the and the book and and movie. And uh, you know, eventually the Cromartys sued on the grounds that they. They're, you know, they bought the house in good faith, and it turned out that it was all these false stories. As it turned out, matter really of judicial record in the in the trials that that were held, uh, the the lawsuits that were heard, and uh, the there was no truth to the Amityville story. It was all made up as the attorney for the attorney William Weber, who was the attorney for um, was it Ronald, DeFeo? Ronald DeFeo, who's known as Butch. Uh, Butch um, had had uh, Weber as his defense attorney, and Weber was trying to think of some angle to get him a new trial, you know, because he had, he had murdered his entire family, siblings and parents in that house. And so Weber thought that if people believed he was driven to this by demon possession or something, he might get some, you know, a new look at the case. And Weber has, you know, publicly confessed that uh, that story was made up with him and George and Kathy Lutz in his law office over, as he put it, several bottles of wine that George was drinking. So that's... That, that's another uh, case, and the, the the point there is that you know people would would be knocking on on the Cromartys' door, wanting to come in and look around and see the ghost. People were milling about in the yard, and as I say, I, I got to know her, and we we had had some interesting conversations, and. Uh, TV show wanted to get in there and film, and and she explained to me, you know, very, very nice to me. She said, "Look, Joe, I can't, I can't uh, let anybody in because if I do, then it, you know, it will undermine our lawsuit. You can't, you can't complain that people are bothering you coming to the door and <laughs> wanting to come in, and and at the same time let let a TV crew in, right." It's sort of contradictory, and and I understood that. After the book, there were a lot of uh, the Amityville book. I mean, there were a lot of really uh, important inconsistencies that were just, I mean, physically obvious things that were could not have been true. Uh, well, that's exactly right. Yeah, and and I went over some of those with with Barbara Cromartie. Um, for example, um, 
they mentioned in the book that there were devil's tracks in the snow at a certain point. And pretty simple research <laughs> showed that there was no snow on the ground at that time. It was a demon snow. <laughs> well, it, you know, uh, there, you know, you could do a book. Uh, there's a chapter right there, um, <laughs> and, and and explain these these otherwise perplex, perplexing paranormal mysteries. Yeah. But that was one example. And but where um, Barbara was concerned, the the um, the book claimed that you know a door was ripped off its hinges and windows were ripped open and so forth. And in fact, uh, as she assured me, and then later a TV after after the dust had settled and everything, uh, she was willing to, to let a TV crew in. And uh, I didn't get to go, uh, but they picked my brains and I put them in touch with her and and uh, she took them around the house and showed them a number of the inconsistencies. Now things were exaggerated, and one of them was that the the doors, the doors and windows all had the original old hardware and the old varnish all in evidence, and they got, you know, close up shots of that and everything. Uh, that nothing had been replaced. No locksmiths had ever been called to the house. In fact, the police hadn't been called to the house. So, really, it was just a you know, a travesty, the the Amityville case, which which is really the Amityville hoax. And it, it seems to be a pattern uh, with the Warrens that that their most uh, popular or well-known cases are, are sort of plagued with these, what, what would you call them, reality-based inconsistencies? Is that a polite way of putting Yes, it? yes. <laughs> now, the, the Warrens didn't have as much really to do with Amityville as they might have liked to because, you know, they didn't do one of their famous books. That went to somebody else and they were kind of kind of not not uh, famous enough at the time or something. But they did, um, they had been involved in Amityville and they went on, as I mentioned, to some of these other houses. And there's a pattern. Uh, I've written about this. The, the Warren's modus operandi, as I call it, uh, is this. They... And, and and you have to understand that the Warrens are this sort of were this couple of I think of as medieval-minded Catholics, uh, unlike modern and often very enlightened Catholics. They believe literally in demons, and Ed fancied himself had a business card that said Ed Warren demonologist, and and L- Lorraine uh, was you know acclaimed clairvoyant but uh, wasn't wasn't clairvoyant at all as I, as far as i can tell and they they had this medieval notion of demons and they had gotten into ghost hunting ed was was a artist amateur artist and he would make paintings of haunted houses and then use those to kind of get in get in in with the people in the house and and uh, begin his sort of career and what they what they did was to eventually the cases that ended up as books, they would show up and try to convince the people that they were they were experts. They knew all about everything, and they had some you know ghost hunting equipment like cameras and an ultraviolet light and and some holy water and a crucifix, just what you need, you know, if you're going to investigate ghosts. And they. 
they would go in and take take a case that, for all intents and purposes, had thus far been in the news as pretty much a, a ghost case or maybe a poltergeist case, something like that. Not Not too much about demonic forces. And the next thing you know, the Warrens have convinced everybody that there are demons involved. Uh, Lorraine would go into one of her light trances, which just would mean she would just close her eyes and haul off and say something. And she would she would sense some demonic presence. And the two of them would talk a good talk about this, and 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 you see these poor unsuspecting people who, first of all, don't don't know anything about the paranormal and not aware that that you know there are no haunted places only haunted people as robert baker used to say and so when you have someone who's an expert explaining to them you know that they're well there are these different kinds of spirits and this and that and the other they don't know any better they think maybe these people know what they're talking about and so they it's interesting that in every case of, of this these were catholic families and Ed and Lorraine would show up and convince them that it was really demonic and that they really needed to use their, you know, Catholic powers of exorcism and holy water and so forth. And they would convert it into a demonic book, and then they would get a ghostwriter, and all of all of the shenanigans would be sort of restyled and and exaggerated and spooky elements thrown in. They would punch it up, as we say. <laughs> punch it up. That's right. They would punch it up. And, and this, is, this is for the books. And then, of course, by the time Hollywood got it, I mean, we're talking really punched up. When, yeah. When a chair scooted backwards uh, ends up, uh, you know, turning upside down and hanging in the air upside down. It's yeah. pretty... But Pretty punched up. As a, as a skeptical paranormal investigator, how excited would you be to see a levitation or something like that happens in the films? With, I mean, well, I just would love to. Do I know. It. <laughs> I, I mean, it just there's nothing that would thrill me more. I I remember once talking to a young lady many many years ago who had been uh, you know uh, taken in by the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi group. You know, the transcendental, the oh, TMers, yeah. mm-hmm. the transcendental meditation people. And sadly, my my good friend, Doug Henning, the magician, the very talented young magician who's, who's, who died young, and he was taken in by this. And, and you know, Doug would Doug was well-known as a TMer, and he would go on TV and levitate people. <laughs> uh, James Randi chastised him because, obviously, Doug was doing, using the magic trick version of this on stage, and... He wasn't deliberately trying to be deceptive, but it just, you know, a lot of people didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Here's a guy who believes in TM, and they teach levitation, and, well, here he is on TV levitating someone, you know. If you don't really make clear that, yes, but this is a trick, and and so on. But I, I remember telling this young lady that uh, I doubted that uh, anyone could levitate, that there was this thing called, the, you know, the law of gravity. And and she began to berate me about how closed-minded I was, and and how pitiful science was, and science didn't know everything, and you know the usual the usual claptrap, all very emotionally presented. 
And, and I said, well, no, wait a minute. Stop. I said, let me tell you how really open-minded I am. I, I am willing, because she was telling me she knew this, this guy, this guru, that could levitate. And I said, have you seen him? No, but he wouldn't lie to me, she said. Wow. And I said, well, but, okay, so, so let me tell you how really open-minded I am. I will go any place and meet any reasonable conditions for him to show me this. And, of course, immediately the, you know, the barriers went up. Well, nobody has to prove anything to you. And, and, I, and, you know, and I said, well, but, but wait, um, I'm, not, I'm not at this point just anybody. I'm, I'm somebody who's written on this and made a lot of TV shows, and I'm someone that I can tell you a lot of people would pay attention to if I said, okay, I've really seen this. Andrea Perrin thinks that her mother's chair lifted up or something, but as best I can tell, if you subtract 30-some years of exaggeration and, and brouhaha and, and the power of suggestion and so forth, basically her chair slid back and snagged on something or whatever. Certain physical laws come to mind here and tipped backward. Basically, you know how when you go to a a Pentecostal service or one of the televangelist services where they demonstrate going under power. And the evangelist is there and the people are, you know, getting ready to go into the power. And you can watch some of them, you know, sort of getting into the into the role. And then they're they're pointed at or touched or something and they fall back. There's usually a catcher. Yeah, I would actually encourage listeners to seek out the documentary Marjo, M A R J O E. Yes, Marjo, yeah, which won a standing ovation at Cannes way back in the 70s. Yeah. She has an excellent, excellent movie. And he sh- he shows that, and he shows how to give him a push if you need to. Yes. <laughs> and um, which happened to me, um, I-, I was in at, at one service, uh, curiously enough, at a Catholic church, which doesn't usually do that, but they had a visiting charismatic Catholic who, who, did, who did that, and and I had talked to the guy, and he invited me to the service. I had no idea who I was, of course. And I decided to just stand there, you know, pretty rigid. <laughs> and it was kind of funny. He was so determined I was going to go. He was a, he gave me a real push on the forehead. And at some point, you know, it's hard to not to go down or step back. And the catcher caught me. Wow! Yeah. So and my <laughs> wife, my wife caught it on film. It's a blurred. It's a blurred picture, but it's priceless. Wow! But I, but I think that same the same psychology of that, which is very much like stage hit, and those people you find will be compliant. And if you ask them to do something, and tell them they then they can't do this or whatever, they will probably go along with you, and that you may lead them into a kind of dissociative state, but they're basically. Uh, you know, doing doing what's expected of them, and and certainly these people who fall into the power, they know they're supposed to fall down. No two do it the same way, because there's no set way you have to do it. Some will stiffen and fall straight back. Some will slump. Some will fall down and twitch, and so on. Kind of like when you were a kid and someone said, "Bang bang, you're dead." Yeah, and 
there were several ways to act. Right, everybody right? suddenly you just become quite dramatic based on your own information. Yeah, we had each had our own style. You know, we could pitch forward or fall backward or you know, twitch or our eyes would we fall with our eyes open or whatever. Well, and I, I don't want to sound like a cynic, but uh, I, I suspect the same thing is going on with Bob Larson's demonology courses. It's, you know, well, well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's what that's where I'm getting yeah. to is is that that's the root of that's at the root of all of this stuff, and and I think that's what happened with uh, uh, Mrs. Perrin in. Uh, in the books that her daughter has written, and anyway, one can one can read my analysis, but I go into you know pretty much all of the phenomena. Yeah, and uh, I, it's a little my assessment is a little less supernatural. Than, right, and I, <laughs> I would suspect that that most listeners would probably think that that kind of um, let's call it stage possession <laughs> mm-hmm. is is relatively harmless, but. I I think what I've seen is maybe not because a lot of people, and I say a lot, uh, enough that it's it's troubling uh, in, throughout the world, are conducting exorcisms um, against unwilling victims, and that's where it really seems to be quite dangerous, and people get hurt or die from the experience of the exorcism. Exactly, and and in even even the most you know, when you when you tell people that they're possessed, or you put them through some some supernatural business, you're really ch- you know you're changing their lives in in all kinds of ways. You're, for example, you're you're telling them that there's this invisible supernatural realm that uh, is controlling things, and and science can't find this realm, and you know those of us who I mean, I've done this work, paranormal investigative work now for over 40 years, and I increasingly am convinced that we live in a real, natural world. I've found no evidence at all for anything supernatural. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel! 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And... So, it, but if but if I did, I would obviously be life changing, life transforming, and that's what happens to people. They get caught up in in cults and and fringe groups and so forth, in which um, they become increasingly seduced by you know, invisible forces, demons, and so forth. And it's it's not healthy. No, I agree. It's not harmless. It's not harmless. Uh, the people who think, oh, well, but if the person's, if the person's uh, you know, a chronic uh, drinker, and you convince him that it's devils that are making him do it, and you exercise the devils, and maybe you could trick him into get, quitting drinking, well, I just don't think that's okay. I mean, I think that's... That takes paternalism to a kind of fascistic degree, and and uh, I don't I don't like that idea that it's okay to fool the little people. I don't know I personally don't know any little people. Um, being an equalitarian, I think people are people, and they don't need to be treated like well we'll humor them and convince them that that some demon did this and their guardian angel is going to do that and so forth. No, I, I, I don't think that's helpful or health or healthy to do. Yeah. And I would say that if, if, if you're in a position where you feel like you're experiencing a supernatural event, it would be really helpful to go to someone who's not in, I guess to someone who's in an out group, you know, someone who's not mm-hmm. experiencing these things, because I think you can get into a, uh, a reinforcement loop where, if you're like if ghost hunters, I think you have this problem. If if you go ghost hunting, and you only talk to ghost hunters, you never talk to anybody who might be uh, have a different opinion. Uh, mm-hmm. Then you're only going to get reinforcing feedback. Right, and and there there are ghost hunters who would not even talk to a guy like me. Or very now, I've had that problem too. It's just, I find it really yeah. disappointing because I'm I'm very interested. I mean, what could be more exciting? than evidence of life after death or uh, in continued existence after death. I, I think it would be wonderful. Oh, absolutely. Uh, if we're, you know, this is the thing, we've talked about this before, but the paranormal offers all these uh, great promises that, you know, if, if ghosts are real, then we don't really die. And if if flying saucers are real, then we are not alone in the universe. And so on. Uh, if psychics are real, we might get a, a glimpse of something in our future that we could avoid. So, of course, if, if we were voting, we'd probably all vote for these things. But we, you know, in science, we are not voting, and that's not how we decide. Right. <laughs> but uh, I, I understand. You know, people. A lot of people think that that skeptics somehow just don't want to believe in all kinds of things. And no, they're most skeptics as well would vote. It's just that they've wised up and they've learned a thing or two. For example, that professional wrestling is fake. Well, I I hate to bring that up, you know, in front of your audience who I'm sure is, 
you know, a bunch of innocent. Just, you're supposed to say spoiler but, alert, Joe. You say spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but pretty soon you realize that, gee, it would, it, wouldn't it be nice, as, as Carl Sagan, I remember once, I remember Carl Sagan saying this, I was there when he said it, uh, that he wished... He wished he could talk to his dead parents, even as he put it, just once a year to tell them how the grandkids are. Aww. That kind of, you know, that kind of feeling, and, and and those feelings are powerful. I've felt them in myself. You know, wishing I remember when my grandmother died and how much I did not want that to be the case. And I think most of us have have some feelings and experiences like that, where no, we we wouldn't be against communicating with our dead loved ones. Not an idea we're innately hostile to. In fact, we've had to protect ourselves from the tendency to be seduced by charlatans on these uh, fronts. Yes. I think um, going back to the um, the Conjuring case, the Perrin family, when you read the book or the books, um, did you see anything in the books that led you to believe there might be um, something that could be investigated at this point, or is the whole case primarily just uh, anecdotal at this point? Well, I, I I treated it the the account as as here's an account that one can respond to, and I have done that. I don't want to say too much sure. about my approach, but but one can one can look at it. It's, it's pretty much what you can do with a cold case. People are people are at this stage, you know, dead. Some of them, the principles are, if, if you could have gotten to them 30 years ago, you might have been able to do something, but now the positions they take are entrenched and they've got maybe exaggerated views of things that happened, so on. But I think it's still possible to suggest, based on things they say, some things that can you can explain pretty much on their own terms, but... Well, I would say that that um, in the film they did a lot of the kind of things that I really, I'll say, disdain about a lot of ghost investigations, which is uh, they felt like paranormal things were going on, so they apparently went and looked to see who had died there. Um, oh, it's, yeah, it's just <laughs> straight out of the formula of the idea that I mean, you're almost expecting them to try to prove that there was. The house was built on an Indian burial ground. Right. You know, there are certain sort of stock motifs, and 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 you know what they are, and so you go looking for them. It's a kind of um, you're engaging in in confirmation bias, big time that way. Exactly. You 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 get some paranormal things going, and then you you jump to try to confirm it. Well, you know, people died here. Right, they die everywhere. They do. I, I've noticed that. Um, <laughs> up and down every street and in, you know, s- suburban homes and so forth. Monster dog. Steve Novella and his group, the New England Skeptic Society, also met and investigated the Warrens. Their interaction wasn't as hostile as Joe Nichols, but it's just as interesting. How did you hear about the Warrens for the first time? Do you remember when you first heard about them and their, their, their work? No, I don't remember when I first heard about them because they're just they they were already locally famous before we 
started the then the Connecticut Skeptical Society, which soon you know, very quickly transformed into the New England Skeptical Society. Uh, they were they were locally famous people. You know, I just I so I always knew about the Warrens. You know what I mean? There was I don't remember the moment when I became aware of them. Wow! So they had already been operating for uh, a while. Forty years before we we got involved. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and right in Connecticut, right in like you know literally down the road from us, you know a couple towns over. So yeah, we absolutely knew who they were. So was it? Um, let's well, let's talk about the the nest. So like you, you had a group of friends who formed. Um, the Connecticut Skeptic Society, you said? Yeah, that at first, and then we realized there were no other ones in New England, so we might as well just be the New England Skeptical Society. Well, could you talk about that? Because I think you mentioned that a long time ago in, in your podcast where you talked about looking in the back of the magazines. And- yeah, it was actually Perry. You know, Perry you know, always liked to take credit for that. Um, we we became friends and then both realized that we were both skeptics, and we both read the Skeptical Inquirer. And, you know, Perry was over my house one day. He shows me the back of the Skeptical Inquirer where all the local groups are. He's like, you notice anything? There's no group in Connecticut. He's like, we should do that. You and I should form the Connecticut Skeptical Society. And as soon as he said it, I knew it was a perfect idea. You know, of course. Of course we should do that. So we did it. You know, we got my brother Bob involved, our friend, mutual friend Evan you know, now, of course, are on the podcast uh, with us. Jay wasn't involved in those early days. He got involved a little bit later. Um, and we, you know, we just started doing the things that local skeptical groups do, doing local investigations, you know, writing a newsletter, holding local lectures, trying to get plugged into the big national group, which at that time basically was uh, PSYCOP. That was really the only game in town. Um yeah, it was a lot of fun. We did, we really cut our teeth on a lot of a lot of really interesting local investigations. So I'm trying to picture this. How how old were you in this? Like, is this college? No, no. I uh, was this. So this was 1996. So I was like just finishing my residency. Oh wow, that's actually wow. Okay, that I didn't realize that was this recent. Okay, so so how did you decide that? Um, how did you pick your investigations there locally? Uh, whatever came our way, um, you know, we weren't that discriminating. And once we got a little bit of, of uh, credibility and, and got our name out, then some started coming to us, which is always nice. But, um, you know, the Warrens, it, you know, was interesting because for us, they were the big fish, right? They were the most famous paranormal promote proponents in our region. And they were a little intimidating to us, you know. We really thought, oh, God, we really got to make sure we're prepared and really, you know, have get some experience and know what we're talking about before we take them on. Because they're going to be, you know, they, they know what they're doing. They're going to be, you know, uh, difficult to, to really do a good job. And uh, we were we totally overestimated them. Um, well, before before you tell before me. Before we that, get into that. Yeah, yeah. What were they famous for? What did they do? I mean, what? what well, is, the, yeah. They, they, you know, they uh, spawned uh, many, many uh, ghost investigating groups. Uh, probably their cl- their biggest claim to fame was the Amityville horror case. Um, they had already by that time been the subject of movies. Um, so, you know, uh, there, any local ghost story had their name attached to it. Wow! Yeah, yeah they, they investigated thousands of cases, so they pretty much had their hands in any local ghost hunting, ghost story situation. So you decide to investigate the Warrens. How, how did you uh, reach out to them and, and make arrangements to do that? 
I don't remember the, the details. I think we just called them up, you know, or Perry used to do stuff like that a lot. So he just called them up, said, hey, you know, this is who we are. We want to see what you got, you know. So uh, I remember the first meeting very well. I don't know if you want to just dive right into that. Yeah, let's talk. Yeah. So uh, first meeting, what we went over to their house, which um, apparently they often had people over. They had a museum in their basement. And so they would frequently invite people into their house, bring them down to their basement, show them all the artifacts that they had collected over mm. the years. I just saw a documentary about that called The Conjuring. It was very scary down there. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, we, we, had a, we had a blast doing this because here we are. So get the, this, you know, just imagine this old couple, you know, Ed and Lorraine Warren. By this time, they were already in their 70s. And, uh, you know, they were, or maybe in their, they were, at that time, they were in their 60s. And they were clueless. I mean, again, we again we had built them up in our in our heads because we you know you watched a movie about the Warrens and they're presented as like serious researchers who actually know what they're doing. And then you meet them, you're like, oh my god, Ed is just a gavone. I mean, the guy he had no idea what he was doing. Didn't know the first thing about really anything relevant to paranormal investigation or ghost phenomenon or had just totally unprepared for any question that we had to ask him. And he desperately desperately wanted the validation of scientific uh, you know, investigation. He wanted us to validate his claims and his evidence, uh, which was interesting. We, we quickly picked up on that. It's like, wow, this guy's actually desperate for our validation. Uh, Lorraine, you know, who's still around, is a self-proclaimed clairvoyant. And so she was much more... Um, you know, what's what's the word? I mean, she was just way out there. Uh, both of them extremely, extremely religious. And, of course, all of us are, are atheists. And, like, right away, it's, you guys believe in God. It's like they, they want to know that right off the bat. And we... Um, I mean, so many inside jokes came from that uh, that meeting. Well, that, yeah, I, mean, no, I, I was going to say uh, Lorraine. I mean, even now, if I, if I listen to interviews, she always starts off with, "If you don't believe in God, you know, you really are in a hopeless situation in the paranormal." Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, at one point, she asked us, "So, what was it? Why are you atheists? What what went wrong? Was it the science thing?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, Lorraine. It was the science thing. That's that's what drove us from God. Yeah. Um, but you know, they were just, otherwise they were just like your, like your grandparents, you know, they were just a regular old couple. This is what, this was their living. This is what they did for a living. They went around giving lectures at colleges and, you know, they had classes where they told ghost stories, you know, um, that was it. It doesn't seem like a very steady income. No, they, they did, they did it good for themselves. You know, the, uh, they were on the college circuit, you know, they got thousands oh. of dollars. Oh yeah. They talked probably at every college university in new england and the indian area and they yeah they absolutely made a steady income doing that no problem um so our of course so our approach was you know we did not confront them on their belief system that wasn't our purpose there our purpose was to investigate their evidence and that's what we told ed we just want to know what you know you've been doing this for 40 years you must have accumulated some evidence after at that time he claimed eight had to have investigated 8,000 cases. So we're like, hit us, give us your best evidence, show us, convince us. We're open-minded. We will believe it. You just show us some, whatever the most compelling evidence you have is. And he was very, you know, very squirrely the, about the whole thing. 
And I think he was he was afraid that we weren't going to validate his evidence. Um, so he showed us a lot of ghost photos, which if you've ever just gone on the web and look up ghost photos, you've seen them. You know, it's all the same things. It's basically the, the three, four most common photographic artifacts. And you get some flashbacks, some camera cord effect, occasional double exposure, all very unimpressive, just blobs of light on film. Um, and, you know, it's, you know we, when we wrote about our experience with them, we, we had a section on the photographic artifacts because that's, that is their 99% of their evidence. It's just ghost photos. And they made absolutely no attempt to uh, rule out artifacts, to understand the nature of the evidence. Here, and here's an example of the level of sophistication that we were dealing with. On their website, they uh, had a section where they described how to take a ghost photograph. Now, they claim that the ghosts, ghostly images get on the film psychically. The ghosts like psychically project the images onto the film. But they were surprised to find that that happened more often when you used a flash. And the brighter the flash, the better. And yet, it didn't occur to them that the flash was producing the effect that was producing the light on the film. They still thought it was a psychic effect from the ghosts, or at least that's what they professed to believe. So that's what we were dealing with. We pointed that out to them, and they just sort of quietly took that off their website without ever acknowledging our correction. Um, but that, that's, that's basically what we were dealing with. Wow. So, <laughs> but other than that, they seem like nice people. They did. It was fun hanging out with them. They were, they were nice people. Um, you know, at least at that stage. You know, once we wrote our article and, like, Ed no longer had any, you know, delusion of convincing us about anything, uh, he did get a little nasty on a couple occasions. So um, we – Perry and I were on a, a local TV show with Ed Warren and somebody who was working with him at the time. And, um, yeah, he was kind of a jerk on that show. He, he um, did a typical thing where he sort of – dropped new evidence on us that we had never seen before. It's like, explain that, skeptics. It's like, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, Ed, we've been asking you for evidence now. It had been a couple of years. We've been asking you for evidence for the couple of years. We've never seen that before. We'd be happy to take a look at it if you're willing to give us the evidence now to evaluate. Because he would never put evidence in our hands to to investigate. He would only show it to us. Um, and I, and we wrote about the two big pieces of evidence. So Ed, Ed claimed that his best single piece of evidence was a video of the white lady at Union Cemetery. And as we described it, it was at that perfect distance and resolution that it was suggestive of a ghostly figure. But you couldn't really see it well enough to, to know that it wasn't Lorraine in a bedsheet. You know what I mean? Right. So <laughs> – Right, it just wasn't close up. It wasn't yeah. in focus enough. The the just the quality was not there. So it was like if you were trying to fake a ghost video, that's exactly what it would have looked like. Um, the other piece of evidence, which actually was Ed did not own, it was actually owned by somebody who was investigating with him, and that's how we got our hands on it. So again, Ed never gave us a single piece of evidence to actually investigate. But somebody who went on an investigation with him did. And this was, you know, now the infamous video of the kid that disappeared. You mean teleports? So, yeah, well, uh, <laughs> teleported. He, he dematerialized was the t term that. Oh, Eddie. right. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, but they're, in, they're investigating a haunted house. There's a lot of students with them. 
And, you know, when they were they didn't notice anything unusual during the investigation. But the next day when they're looking at the, the now this is like a VHS tape, right, that we're talking about. Um, at one point, uh, one of the students was standing in a doorway, like puts his hand on his head and looks up. Something had dripped on top of his head and then he disappears uh, and, and he's gone from the tape. Now, a three year old looking at this would say the tape stopped. And then was restarted later when the kid wasn't there. That's the obvious sort of hypothesis. Yeah, I, I would posit that it might take a six-year-old. But yeah, I'm with you. What maybe, maybe <laughs> six-year-old. No, I think my three-year-old did that. Well, time, your three-year-old's it, exceptional. My six-year-olds yeah. are still kind of amazed by that. So. <laughs> um, yeah, so the in persistence thing. Uh, yeah, when do, when do kids figure that out? I don't but, know. I'm, uh, I'm just kidding. So yeah, I know. I know. But uh, so okay. So is it fine? All right. You know, I I said I know. Uh, are you sure that the camera wasn't stopped? I mean, because that's the first thing that occurs to me when you look at that. And you go, we are absolutely sure nobody was anywhere near that camera. It didn't stop. That kid disappeared. That was Ed's famous line. Okay, can we look at the tape? Yes, he gave us a tape. We you know we didn't touch it. We handed it directly over to. A technician, somebody from HB Group, which you know they do, they have um, video equipment and and do this sort of thing. They had an editing deck. Now, with with the old VHS tapes, uh, once you know the technology, then you then you can make sense of the investigation. So, first of all, the editing deck that you can view information around the edge of the picture that you wouldn't see on your TV. And when you look at the tape on an editing deck, you could see that there was someone standing right next to the camera, despite the fact that they insisted there was nobody anywhere near it. So that was just flat out proven factually wrong. Next, you can you know, pretty much prove that the tape was stopped and restarted. And that's because the way these tapes worked is the images were scanned line by line across each frame from top to bottom, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, because you have the spinning head and it's just scanning the lines very, very quickly, however many, you know, lines there were per second. Um, so if someone disappeared, actually disappeared, what would they would that would have happened in the middle of that scanning process. It wouldn't have happened at the end of the last swipe on one frame and prior to the first swipe on the next frame. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah, the chances of that happening would be, you know, minuscule. That it happened at that perfect moment that it was right, you know, it almost certainly would have occurred while one frame was being swiped. And and it didn't. He, the kid was completely there on one image and completely gone on the next. Really the only way to make that happen is to stop the tape and restart it. But then further, I mean, this is like total overkill. There were multiple discontinuities right at the same moment, audio and video discontinuities, like footfalls with echoes that abruptly stop right at that frame, Mm -hmm. and also a flickering candle that shifts right at that frame. So you could, you know, multiple independent lines of evidence showed that there was a discontinuity right when the kid vanished from the film, and it was completely in between two um, images, not while when image was being rendered. So uh, there we go. The analysis pretty conclusively proves that the tape was stopped and restarted. Did they ever find that child, Steve? The the guy, nothing. <laughs> the thing is, that's the interesting thing. The guy, the kid said nothing unusual happened. He didn't disappear, and he remembers nothing unusual from that whole evening. Again, nobody did. 
It was only noticed when they viewed the tape, which is a, a red flag for a photographic artifact. Yeah. You know, nothing happened. Nothing happened. It was just something that appeared on the video. So it's some, it has to do something with the video. So anyway, so like total overkill proved that that's what happened. The most simple thing is, in fact, what all the evidence points to. They never accepted it. They never accepted that conclusion. They insisted that that kid dematerialized. Uh, just immune to evidence and reason. They, they, they knew what they were looking for. Yeah. I think that's one of the big uh challenges um that most people don't know the details of the real investigations they're only familiar with uh the fictionalized versions yeah and, exactly and so I, I i had a lot of issues um with this after i became uh more well just openly a skeptic uh when i was younger i would is that story true is that story true i would investigate you know <laughs> see what i could yeah. find out and uh, a lot of things converge to, to get me where I'm at right now. But um, the Amityville horror in particular was one that used to scare me a lot. And now I, I don't find it frightening at all. And um, I, I wonder I, – I understand that The Conjuring is doing quite well. But I, I, yep. I don't think um, there's been any really great takedowns of the backstory. Or, or, not that there necessarily needs to be a takedown per se, but – it's heavily fictionalized. I mean, even compared to what the actual people reported, um, at least yeah, the, the Perrin family. Yeah, and the, the so did you see the film? Not yet. No, I, I will go out to see it. We're going to probably review it on our show too. But we we I haven't had a chance to see it. Yet. We just got through filming our web series, so that that's kept us busy. But um, yeah, you know, like the Amityville Horror, you know, the, you have a, a, a absolutely fictionalized version of events, and um, although in this case, you know, it, with the Amityville Horror, there was an admission that it was all made up. In this case, the family claims that yeah, that's pretty much what happened. You know, we were haunted, although it was over in the movie. It's over a very short period of time. In, in real life, they were in that house for nine years or something yeah, like nine years. That's a long time. <laughs> that's a long time. Uh, yeah, you know, and when asked, for example, why did you stay in the house if there were apparitions of rotting flesh walking around? And the answer was very unsatisfying. The daughter, who was the youngest person at the time, said, uh, I guess it's just our destiny to tell this story to the world. That doesn't really answer the question, does it? Um, <laughs> And she ends, the, She ends. like I've read some interviews with her, where she says, hey, I know what we experienced. And of course, no, you don't. You really don't know what you experienced. You have a constructed perception uh, leading to a constructed memory and reconstructed memory over and over again. What, what, whatever's going on in your head right now of events that happened 30 plus years ago, 40 years ago, is a complete confabulation and fiction without necessarily any relationship to reality. But in her mind... You know, that story really happened, you know? I know, but to really enjoy the film, I have to suspend my materialist dogma and have some popcorn and a soda. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, listen, I, I love a good ghost story. I'm sure I'll enjoy the movie as a good horror film. I oh, love I, being creeped out. Yeah, I'll tell you this. The, the first third of it is the most effective horror film I've seen in a long time. If you know anything about the Warrens, which you do, having actually met them... Um, You'll find that the on-screen uh, portrayal of them is—I want to say too goody two shoes. Like they're too good at what they do without, yeah. without any question at all. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. And so, and you know they're going to succeed in, in what they do. Um, 
Yeah. So yeah, it'll probably be hard not to vomit watching yeah. their trail. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but the first yeah, third you, is rocking good. It's really good. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing. Again, same thing with other movies. At least one other movie I saw where the Warrens were 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 depicted, and it was the the stark contrast to reality is jarring. They had like the scene where like um that someone is telling them about their experience. Like, oh, you know, they they're not quite sure what's going on yet. The person who's being haunted. They're like, these strange things are happening in my house. And like Ed and Lorraine give each other a knowing look. Like, oh yeah, we are familiar with this phenomenon. You know, oh please. I mean, it really is nothing like them at all. Um, they they really were very unsophisticated uh, individuals. And you know we. I have lots of secondhand stories about Ed because once we started investigating the warrants, we that investigation took us to a lot of people who used to work with the Warrens and then broke off. Um, again, the Warrens over the previous decades must have spun off dozens and dozens of independent ghost hunting groups because this is the this is the cycle. You know, you you see Ed and Lorraine talk at a college, you, you know, uh, give a college lecture, you go up afterwards. And they would tell you, oh, you should come to our classes. You know, we give, they used to give classes at the carousel restaurant, you know, uh, down the road. And uh, you'd go to the class. You know, so you'd potentially get, you, they would go through a process of, of uh, serial selection until you get the people who were, like, really into it. Um, and, and then you would, they would take people on investigations. And then they would figure out a couple of things. One, you know, Ed wasn't the most honest person in the world. And two that what he did took absolutely no special skill or knowledge. And so they figured, hey, we could do this, and we'll do it right, and we'll do it better, and we'll do it honestly. And so they would just break off and do it on their own. So, they, and then, so there was this never-ending cycle of new people coming in and then just very quickly leaving and going off to form their own groups. And so when we talked to them, so we, we talked to many people, disillusioned former colleagues you know former students of ed and lorraine and they had a lot of nasty stories to tell about them which i feel a little uncomfortable talking about because it's all secondhand you know so it's essentially hearsay uh but i'll just say you know um if it very we were told you know firsthand stories from the people who were were investigating with ed and lorraine involving you know pretty nasty shenanigans so many people mentioned like having worked with Ed and Lorraine and like even uh, the uh, paranormal state uh, show worked with her for a while. It just, uh, it astonishes me. She still has that much cachet at her age with her mm-hmm. uh, w- alleged levels of competency. I don't know though. On the other hand, she seems like she's probably a really nice lady. I don't, <laughs> I think the thing is the uh, um, there's, there's two parts to that. Uh, I, I tend to like people in general. Um, yeah. But at the same time, um, I think there is um, uh, they have an undue influence in the paranormal world based on fiction, right? Yeah. So we we uh, tried desperately to have Ed and Lorraine take us on one of their actual investigations, um, but at the last minute, um, Ed was talked out of it by his some of the people who was working with him, um, and then he. Um, ex- made the excuse that, well, because we were atheists, he couldn't protect us mm-hmm. from the entities. And we're like, Ed, listen, we'll take our chances. We, we know what we're getting into. It's not your responsibility. We'll be fine. Don't, don't worry about us. 
but uh you know, I remember I had, a, I had that final phone conversation with Ed, like before we were going to write our article, and he was like really worried that because he was bailing on us, that we were going to get like do a hit job on him, that we were going to write a very critical article about him. And what he said was, you know, when he, he finally said, "Listen, I just we can't do it. You know, the the other guys won't won't let you guys come on the investigation with us because you're atheists." And I said, "Yeah, Ed, yeah, this is very disappointing. We're going to have to go with our article without that, and we're going to have to explain that you didn't do that." And I could just hear how crestfallen Ed was because again, he still was desperate for our approval at that point. And he said, "You're going to make me look like a chump, aren't you?" Oh, like, oh, well, I'm going to tell the truth. That I'm going to write it as I see it. But he was, uh, yeah. So he that's being you know, part of that. You know, him was afraid that we were going to be critical of him and really wanted to please us. But, um, but still, you know, hey, he made the decision. You know, if we, of course, if we had gone on an investigation with him, we just would have had more material. It really wouldn't have changed the the tone of our article. Or you would have disappeared and never been seen again. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> We we did go on investigations with people who worked with the Warrens, though, um, just not with with Ed Lorraine Warren themselves. And again, they were you know, and same thing. Lots of ghosts. It's all just people with ghost stories. At the end of the day, that's it's just like watching the the ghost hunting shows today. It's just people scaring each other with ghost stories without a shred of credible evidence and without the slightest idea how to do an actual scientific investigation, the difference between a hypothesis and a theory about anomaly hunting, hypothesis testing, they had no clue. They, they really are, you know, pseudoscientists. They, they just simply have no idea about how to do an actual um, scientific investigation. In fact, um, I gave a lecture for Ed's ghost hunting class where I explained to them what a scientific investigation is. And what the kind of evidence it would take to convince us that ghosts are real. And they just didn't get it. You know, just, they just, just didn't, they didn't want to get it. It just was, they were just having fun. You know, yeah. like most people, it's just, this was their fantasy. It, it really wasn't about, and you know, when I often say, it's like, that's fine. If this is what, you know, we all need to do stuff for fun. You know, if this is your fantasy, if this is for fun, have a good time. Just stop saying you're doing science, okay? <laughs> Just stop that. Stop it, because you're not. You're not doing science. That's really the only beef that we have with them is that they claim that they were doing that they were gathering scientific evidence when they were making a mockery of the scientific method. So you think it was a form of LARPing? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and we often would say that. Like, we say these people need to play tabletop or need to go LARPing. Yeah, they need to have some kind of fantasy-based escape that they know is fantasy. The problem is this was their escape, but they were confusing it with reality. We used to say that all the time. If these people just went LARPing. You know, they, they wouldn't have to That's do really this. funny. <laughs> well, I don't want to spoil the, uh, the findings of your investigation. We will put a link to that in the show notes. Sure. But, but I did notice that <laughs> the list of incredibly dangerous arcane tomes in Ed's library included uh, – well, unearth Arcana. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, the, that museum was hilarious. It was, uh, you know, it was. I don't know where they got all that stuff. Um, Here's a good example of the kind of research Ed did for his occult museum. In this clip, he's walking an interviewer through his museum of cursed and demonic artifacts. As an FYI, this interviewer here is his son-in-law Tony Spira, 
who continues to help out Lorraine to this day and was also the fellow conducting the interview at the start of this episode. Tony points out a copy of a dark-covered book with a post-it note on it which says, Book of Shadows. And above that, printed on the cover, are the dread words, the Necronomicon. We head over this way, but while we're heading this way right here, I see this book here. This book, it says Book of Shadows, Necronomicon. Can you tell me what that is? Yes, that's one of the original Books of Shadows, which were written in the uh, medieval uh, days. And this one here was translated into English. Just the reading of that book has had terrible results for many people. This is not a book that anyone should ever buy, a book of shadows. It goes into the incantations of devils and demons and rituals. Mm -hmm. Just a modicum of research, and Ed would have learned that the book of shadows he's holding is, first of all, not a book of shadows, and second of all, not the Necronomicon. This is a copy of the hoax Necronomicon released by the writer known as Simon. It's a famous literary hoax. It's full of incantations and spells that are supposed to be from Sumeria, which are, in fact, not... Also, it's not a book of shadows. Book of shadows are spell books for modern paganism, not ancient medieval scrolls or spells or rituals. His museum of demonic possessed items was full of off-the-shelf Halloween junk, dolls and toys, books you could buy at any bookstore. And in this case, one which wasn't even close to being what he was representing it to be. But it was like stuff that they thought was demonic or scary or whatever. You know, again, to put a lot of this into into uh, context, Ed and Lorraine were very devout Catholics, and that was their mythology. Um, and so anything they, they firmly, for, you know, Ed called himself a demonologist. You know, that that was his approach. To these weren't just ghosts; these were demons. Um, his uh, most haunted artifact, according to Ed, was. A Raggedy Ann doll, which he kept in a glass case. And before, and again, not, we were still not sure why he did this, but when he led us down to the basement, then he disappeared for like 10 minutes and then came back. I have no idea what he was doing. I think he was just spying on us. But um, he warned us, don't go anywhere near the Raggedy Ann doll. Don't touch it. Try not to brush up against anything because then like, you might get possessed because these things are all so evil. So, of course, we're standing around there touching everything, you know, having a good time and, you know, mocking the Raggedy Ann doll. He told us like a story about, oh, the last person who mocked that Raggedy Ann doll got, died an hour later in a motorcycle accident. Okay, yeah. We're all still around. No problems. Um, but he said, if you, if you do touch anything, let me know. Because I'll cleanse your aura by visualizing you in a Christ light. And he'll be able to cleanse us in that way. So, but we, we never fessed up to having touched anything. Mm. And the curse is still with you, you're saying? I guess we're all still cursed, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so what cracks me up about this to no, ex- I mean, just to no end is... The uh, I had uh, heard you tell that story about the doll, and you always called it a Raggedy Ann doll. And I always assumed you were saying that like it was a Xerox or it was a, you know what I mean? Like that was a generic term. And and when I went to see the movie, they have this doll Annabelle as part of the story in the beginning, as part of the intro. Yeah. And oh, it's super creepy. It's awesome. And then I thought, well, what does the real Annabelle look like? Because I heard Steve talk about seeing it. And I went and looked. It's like, oh, my God. No, seriously. It's a Raggedy Ann doll. 
No, it is a literal Raggedy Ann doll. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so we were talking, uh, I was talking to my friends about why they changed it. And, and you know, obviously a copyright issues or obviously a Raggedy Ann doll is not as scary as this creepy thing they use. And I'm like, no, guys, don't you see? The doll had to be able to pick up stuff and Raggedy Ann doesn't have fingers. <laughs> right. Right, right. That 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 was that was great. So I'm going to put a picture of that in the show notes too um, about the real Annabelle and the um, the uh, one from the film. Monster dog. Well, that's a lot of information about the Warrens. In my research, I also found some interesting articles and videos, and links to those are in the show notes. Be on the lookout for Joe Nichols' research on the Perrin family haunting as depicted in The Conjuring. It'll be in an upcoming issue of Skeptical Inquirer magazine. Also in the show notes is a write-up of the New England Skeptic Society's investigation of the Warrens by Steve Novella and the late Perry DeAngelis. It's a great read. Be sure to check it out. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. I'm Blake Smith, and you've just been listening to our special episode, The Warren Omission. You heard interviews with Joe Nickel, Steve Novella, Marvin Scott, and Ray Garten, and additional audio from Ed and Lorraine Warren and their son-in-law, Tony Spira. If you want to help out Monster Talk, please share this episode with your friends and enemies alike, or frenemies, or enemies. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the Skeptic Society or Skeptic Magazine. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys, and thanks again for listening. skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. 